by way of introduction, the race is not always won by the biggest or strongest or fastest, but by the one who with perseverance and determination stays in the race. Now remember the Christian life is a marathon, not a sprint. Is that statement true? Listen to this. Ecclesiastes 9 and verse 11. I saw again under the sun that the race is not to the swift, and the battle is not to the warriors, and neither is bread to the wise, nor wealth to the discerning, nor favor to men of ability, for time and chance overtake them all. Now under the sun means the world's point of view. Time and chance. But we know that it's the providence of God that governs all things. The fast... The fastest man may many times win the race, but he doesn't always win the race. And it depends on many factors over which only God would have control. Who is a consistent winner in the world of nature? Now, if you know the answer to this, wait until everybody has a chance to think about it so we can see if we can determine what the answer would be. Small in size, runs rather slowly, very poor eyesight, very tenacious, unafraid of giants. Anybody have a guess? One more hint. Is the mascot of a well-known Big Ten football team represented in our congregation? I'll let you guess who that might be. Well, it is the Wolverine. And there he is on top of the tree, getting ready to pounce upon his lunch. The wolverine, or the old skunk bear, as the Indians called him, is 35 pounds of dynamite. One can cover 18 miles in a single night, but he runs rather slowly and is clumsy on dry terrain. Get him on the snow and he can move quickly without sinking into the snow because he has thick pads on his feet and all four feet hit the ground at the same time. So he can outrun a deer or an elk in the snow easily. His fur has a resilient quality of being frost-free. So even in sub-zero temperatures, snow does not stick to his fur. And that means he can run close to the ground without getting all matted and clotted up. In 1927, some alumni presented to the University of Michigan two live wolverines, Biff and Benny, for mascots on the sideline of the football game. But they proved to be very vicious and unpredictable. And at the Navy game, they thought they would have the Navy goat for lunch, but then they turned on their handlers who were trying to control them on leashes, if you could imagine. And that's the reason today you don't see any mascots. <laughs> for the Michigan team, any uh, Wolverines. Now, here is the giant, and he weighs as much as 1,500 pounds, may stand up on his hind legs to be about nine feet tall. This giant does not like to be challenged or deterred from his objective. One day in the far north country, a Wolverine was voraciously devouring his meal a freshly killed marmot. It was also a feeding area for bears, but it was early in the spawning season and the salmon were just beginning to run, so fishing was rather sparse. 
all of a sudden the bear smelled the aroma of fresh killed blood. And following the scent, he came over to where the wolverine was having his lunch. The wolverine heard him coming up behind. He didn't like the fact that anybody was disturbing his meal. But the bear was not going to be deterred from taking the meal away from him. So Mr. Bear failed to heed the warning and he exploded into the attack mode. And there you can see the little wolverine going up against that great big giant. Well, with a powerful slash of his jaw, he knocked the wolverine over on the rocks, opening up a wound in his thick hide. But the wolverine was quick to leap forward to return the attack, aiming for the back of the bear's neck. But he got into his shoulder, and with a fury of claw and fang, the combat commenced. And soon the bear wore out his tiny opponent and grabbed him with his powerful jaws and flung him up against the rock and the wolverine lay there. But the bear was not satisfied to enjoy his purloined meal. He wanted to heap more abuse on the wolverine. So as he bent down, the wolverine mustered every bit of the remaining strength that he had and lunged forward toward the bear's neck. His fangs severed vital cords in the bear's neck, and the bear began to feel a numbing sensation on his body and slumped to the earth. That was the battle. And exhausted and badly wounded, the wolverine found a crevice in the rocks where he would wait and rest until that same determination that enabled him to take on giants would heal his body and he would be ready for the next battle. Now today we come to the study of a man who exhibited some of the same traits as the wolverine. Courage, tenacity, a willingness to take on giants. This fellow made some decisions when he was young that caused him to be greatly rewarded when he was old. So young people, we want to take note of the fact that things you do when you're young are going to bear great benefit or perhaps some unfavorable results when you are older. The Israelites of old were coming out of bondage in Egypt, as we just saw from Christopher, and they had been supernaturally led by God to the gateway of the Promised Land. But right there at Kadesh Barnea in Paran, spies were sent out to reconnoiter the country. Who do you guess one of those spies was that would be like the Wolverine? Besides Joshua, maybe. Caleb. Caleb. In today's passage, Caleb is 45 years old. Uh, excuse me. He is 45 years later from that time he went out as a spy and he's giving his testimony. Let's take a look in Joshua 14 if you want to be in your Bible there. I was 40 years old when Moses the servant of the Lord sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land. And I brought back word to him as it was in my heart. Nevertheless, my brethren who went up with me 
made the heart of the people melt with fear. But I followed the Lord my God fully. So Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land on which your foot has trodden shall be an inheritance to you and to your children forever, because you have followed the Lord my God fully. And now behold, the Lord has let me live, just as He spoke these 45 years from that time, from the time the Lord spoke this word to Moses when Israel walked in the wilderness. And now behold, I am 85 years old today. Happy birthday, Caleb. I'm still as strong today as I was in the day that Moses sent me. And my, as my strength was then, so my strength is now. That's quite a testimony. Strength for war and for going out and coming in. Now then, give me this hill country about which the Lord spoke on that day. For you heard on that day that Anakim were there with great fortified cities. Perhaps the Lord will be with me and I shall drive them out as the Lord has spoken. Now Caleb had tremendous faith as we will see. And when he said, perhaps the Lord shall be with me, he's not doubting what's going to happen, but five words he knows that I want you to remember. And it's this. Duty is ours, events, God's. Say it with me now. Duty is ours, events, God's. So he knows he's going to do his job. He's going to go in and fight those giants and God is going to take care of the result. Caleb here is asking for the best piece of real estate in Canaan. You remember we talked about the military advantage of having the high ground. Hebron, or Hebron as some call it, was the city of highest elevation in Canaan. And it was a beautiful place. It was a very uh, agriculturally productive area. And that's the place that Caleb asked for. Now, when Caleb went there, he went with 11 other men. He and Joshua saw things differently than the other men. The other men could see that there were giants there and there were high-walled cities with machine gun ports on top of the wall. At least that's what they saw. But you know what Caleb saw? Now Caleb was on a strict manna diet, as was everybody else. And all he could see was grapes, figs, pomegranates, and clear mountain streams. And the beautiful vista of that high country overlooking God's inheritance for the Israelites. Hebron played a prominent place in the lives of the patriarchs. We just saw Abraham on his way to settle down in Hebron. It was the only permanent dwelling place in Canaan for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They are buried in a cave, Machpelah, the cave of Machpelah, not far from there, as are their wives, Sarah, Rebekah, and Leah. Now let's go to verse 13. So Joshua blessed him and gave Hebron to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, for an inheritance. Therefore Hebron became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, until this day, because he followed the Lord God of Israel fully. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba, for Arba was the greatest man among the Anakim. 
Then the land had rest from war. Caleb the Kenizzite was evidently a descendant of Esau. If you take a look in Genesis 36, 10 through 12, you get some of the genealogy there. And then there's a reference to the Kenizzites in Genesis 15, 19. He was aligned with the tribe of Judah. He was an important man in the tribe of Judah because he was one of the men selected as a spy to go in to spy out the land. And of course, that was going to be one of the leaders in the tribe of Judah. It's another clear reference along with Rahab and Ruth to God's mercy on the Gentiles. Now, Caleb is saying, I follow the Lord my God fully. Is Caleb bragging on himself? Well, we had a saying in Alabama, if it's so, it ain't bragging. (laughs) So, I think he is just telling it like it is. And he's just saying what's in his heart. Now, if the Pharisees had been there, they would have said, hey, wait a minute. You can't testify for yourself. We've got to have two or three witnesses in this deal. Well, in verse 8, Caleb stated he followed the Lord fully. In verse 14, the writer of the book of Joshua stated that Caleb followed the Lord fully. In verse 9, Moses testified that Caleb followed the Lord fully. And back in Numbers chapter 14, verse 24, God Himself confirmed that Caleb had a different spirit and had followed Him fully. The word fully or holy just means faith, fullness. He was full of faith so he could believe what God had said. There are those different uh, references there to the testimony concerning Caleb. He believed what God had said and he poured himself wholeheartedly into obedience. Now, how was Caleb, along with Joshua, different from the rest of the people and the rest of the spies. You would have thought they would have been brave men ready to uh, take on the Lord's provision. Well, Joshua and Caleb believed God's Word. They encouraged God's people. They submitted to God's will. They received God's blessing. And they obeyed God's command. Now, there are really no formulas in Scripture because it's not formulas that work. It's God Himself who works according to His ways, we've said. But if you wanted some things that you could follow as a guideline in your life, this would be pretty good. Believe God's Word, encourage God's people, submit to God's will, receive God's blessing as a result, and obey God's command. Their faith and their actions were working together. And their faith was made complete by what they did, according to James 2.22. Now here's faith as defined by Mark Twain, Samuel Clements, the writer. Believing what you know ain't so. That's not too good. Here's faith defined by Dwight L. Moody. Man's weakness leaning on God's strength. That's better. And in connection with man's weakness, we see Horatio, excuse me, Horatius Bonar. This battle is not to the strong, but to the weak. It's fought in weakness. And then the victory is to them that have no might. And certainly that's the way it is, because we trust in Christ. Caleb trusted in the Lord God to win the victory for him. 
So our background is that Caleb believed God and that he tells the truth. And he, along with Joshua, encouraged Israel to attack the Canaanites and take possession of the land. Forty-five years later, his spiritual and physical stamina were as strong as when he completed the task of spying out the land. Our emphasis is a life of faith in following God involves the way you see things. It means seeing things differently than do others and being willing to take bold action depending on what you see. And here's our verse from the New Testament. Therefore, we're always confident for we walk by faith and not by sight. We see things with the eyes of faith. Now, why did Moses send out the spies? We have learned from our study of the book of Numbers that God had already spied out the land. And we need to take a look at this because sometimes we get ourselves into tough decisions where if we had listened and obeyed earlier, we wouldn't have gotten ourselves into such a jam. Look in uh, Ezekiel chapter 20 and verses 5 and 6. I am the Lord your God. In the day that I lifted up mine hand unto them to bring them forth of the land of Egypt and into a land that I had espied for them, flowing with milk and honey, which is the glory of all lands. Now, if God had spied out the land for Israel, why did He command Moses to send out more spies and to search out the land? Using the very same word for spied that we just read here in Ezekiel. Now we're back in Numbers. And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, Send men, that they may search the land of Canaan, which I give unto the children of Israel, every tribe of their fathers, of every tribe of their fathers, you shall send a man, every one a ruler among them. And so Moses got the men together. Why would God have sent men to do what he had already done? There was no need, except that the people wanted to trust the spies and their report instead of God. And God said, that's what you want? Have at it. Deuteronomy 1.21 See, the Lord your God has placed the land before you. Go up, take possession, as the Lord God of your fathers has spoken to you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Now Moses is talking here, and I won't read all that. You know what it says. Then all the people approached me, and they said, Hey, we need to send some spies in here to see what's going on in the land. They already knew what they were supposed to do. Look in verse 24. They turned. They went up to the hill country. They came to the valley of Ish Eshkol. Uh, sometimes that's known as the Valley of Hebron. It's just north of Hebron. And that's where they got all this big fruit and everything that they brought back. They spied it out. They took some of the fruit of the land in their hands and brought it down to us and brought a report and said it's a good land which the Lord our God is about to give to us. Yet, and here comes the clincher, you were not willing to go up, but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. The people called for spies. God knew their rebellious hearts. And He said, give them spies and send leanness to their souls. Now that comes from Psalm 106.15. And that was actually talking about their demand for meat when they only had that manna. But it's a principle there. He gave them their request and sent leanness to their soul. 
So we have to be very careful what we are demanding in our hearts. We want to say, Lord, what do you want us to do and how do you want us to do it? And follow through with that. So leanness to the soul is not exactly a weight loss regimen to slim down your body. It's kind of a more serious thing. Razon, leanness in the Hebrew, means to cause to waste away and to destroy. What it means is that the effect of the got-to-haves on your soul is the same as some kind of wasting disease or starvation on your body. A very unpleasant experience. Listen to what Dr. Albert Barnes says, and this is a, a little longer quote, but I think it's pretty good f- for Americans. Not for us, maybe, but typical Americans. In gratification of their desires, in great temporal success and prosperity, individuals, churches, and nations often forget their dependence upon God, lose their sense of value of spiritual privileges and blessings, are satisfied with their condition, become self-confident and proud, and forfeit the favor of God. If we pray for temporal prosperity, we should also pray that we may at the same time have grace commensurate with it, that it be a blessing and not a curse. If we are visited with prosperity when it has not been the direct object of our prayer, if we inherit riches or if our plans are successful beyond our expectations, or if in the language of the world, fortune smiles upon us, there should be special prayer on our part that it may not be a curse rather than a blessing that it may be so received and used as not to alienate our minds from God. Few are the Christian people who can bear continued success in life. Few are those who are not injured by it. Rare it is that growth in grace keeps pace with uninterrupted worldly prosperity. Rare it is that the blessings of earth are so received and employed that they are seen to be a means of grace and not a hindrance to growth in piety. A man does not know what is best for him when his heart is set on worldly prosperity. And God is more benevolent to people than they are to themselves in withholding what is so often the object of their intense desire. And then Albert Barnes quotes Matthew Henry. And here's what he says. What is asked in passion is often given in wrath. And the end of the quote. Well, that would be pretty good for most Americans because we seem to prize prosperity above character or above anything else. Israel wanted spies. Did it do any good to send the spies? Well, it struck fear into the hearts of all the people. That's about all they got out of it. Here's a question. Why did back then, or why do God's people have so much trouble following Him in the very basics of what He wants us to do, which is just trust and obey. Well, looking at the testimony in the book of Joshua, we could see that they didn't hear too well. At least, they don't listen. Moses had told them over and over again, we're going into the promised land. God has said He's going to knock out the enemy. We can take the land. A good example of failure to listen is found in the New Testament, the Gospel of Mark. Chapter 4, same day when evening was come, Jesus said to them, let's go over to the other side. And they got in the boat and they got out on the water and a big storm came and the disciples thought He said, let's go out to the middle and sink right out here in the boat. (laughs) 
because the boat was filling up with water. They just didn't listen very well. He said, we're going to the other side. Then Jesus said, verse 40, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? Not only do they not listen well, they don't see very well. They look at things and interpret the situation by what they see with physical eyes. Giants, nine feet tall. How tall is nine feet? Tall as the ceiling. That's taller than Paul Renfro. <clears throat> well, you can understand if they're not looking through the eyes of faith. But we know that things are not always as they seem to appear. Because we saw Joseph down in Egypt as a little slave boy, and he turns out to be the prime minister of the place. And we saw how coming out of Egypt, God took care of all of the enemy army, and even later on, we see that you have to look at giants through the eyes of little David, the shepherd boy, and see the great God behind the giants. Faith is a substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Alan Redpath in his book on Joshua points out that when the spies saw the giants, the majority of them measured the giants against their own strength. Joshua and Caleb measured the giants against God. No comparison. The majority trembled while the two triumphed over fear because they were seeing things differently. The majority saw great giants but a little God. Joshua and Caleb saw a great God and little giants. Well, they have poor memories. They've heard it all. They've seen it all. They've seen the Red Sea parted. They've seen walking across, watching the fish on the side there. But they forgot about it pretty quickly. How long did it take them to forget about the Red Sea? Yeah, they ran out of water. Then they're complaining, wanting to go back to Egypt. So the Israelites knew that God had the ability to take them into the Promised Land against all odds. They had seen God's power. Their forgetting was a reason that God told Moses to write it down in Exodus 17 at the Battle of Rephidim, write it down and recite it to Joshua so they'll remember. That's the reason we need to be reading the Bible in our home so we remember about these things. And then finally, they tended to trust in the majority opinion. Often, in everyday life, as in Bible life, the majority is wrong. And that's the reason we have this objective standard here so we can know what's right. We don't have to depend on what Congress votes in or what the President runs through by executive order. As a Christian, we have two choices regarding how you see negative circumstances. One, either you see circumstances as that which would appear to prevent you from getting your way, like that bear, and bring great frustration, or you see circumstances you see God behind the circumstances who wants you to accept His way. And oftentimes His way may not look too good on the surface, but yet He says His way is going to work out for good for us. So there could be two wrong responses to this thing of circumstances as we take a look at them. Negative circumstances. One would be investing a lot of worry, anxiety, striving, seeking to change circumstances that can't be changed right now. 
If it can be changed, that's well and good. If they can't be, then if it can't be, we have to look to God. Second wrong response, trying to escape thinking about circumstances through just escapism. And that would be just entertainment, living in a fantasy world, using drugs or alcohol to obliterate the problem. But, just like that old bear, reality is always hiding somewhere nearby, ready to pounce out when I sober up. Look at the great God behind the circumstances and the giants. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, says the Lord in Isaiah 55. Neither are your ways my ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now in closing, let's ask some questions just to remind ourselves. What causes people, some people, to persevere while others give up and quit? And we would say grace, God's grace. It depends on how you see things. But you see, here's the key. If you're consistently applying the means of grace, then you've got that perspective of God's ways. And you're reminded and you can see what God may be up to. God's certainly not worried about any giants. What was the perspective of the other ten spies? They were devoured by circumstances. You remember they said, this is a land that devours its inhabitants. What's the perspective of men and women who would be like Joshua and Caleb? It's simple. God said it. We can do it. But that's the Old Testament. What about in the New Testament? Well, how about this? Let's run this race with perseverance. The one marked out for us. Let's fix our eyes on Jesus. And that presumes we're not fixing our eyes on circumstances, things, and other people. I'm talking about things that break down sometimes. What caused Caleb to be unafraid of attacking giants? He had a different spirit. And he followed God fully. And that means wholehearted trust and wholehearted obedience. And when we stumble on those things, God is ready to take us back as we've been studying in 1 John. What kind of person does God seek to find? We know this one. We see it all the time. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the earth. You can see Him up there in the ramparts of heaven looking down here to see whose heart is completely His. He wants to strongly support that person. How can we develop the perspective of Caleb? Well, Romans 12, 1 and 2, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Learn to look through the eyes of faith. Begin practicing trusting God. What is the giant in your life today? Is there one? Anger, pride, lust, hypocrisy, greed, fear, the IRS. There are all kind of giants that are out there that sometimes cause us concern. What is the circumstance or difficulty in your life that brings the giants out, that causes them to attack? Because we're not always susceptible to what those giants can do. But what can I do to turn passive, debilitating fear into the courage of a Caleb? Apply the means of grace. Faith comes from hearing and hearing from the Word of God. The Word is very important. How could your response to adverse circumstances influence those around you to strengthen them? Even as 
Caleb tried to influence those around him. How can you follow a path that's different from that of the world? What was Caleb doing from age 40 to 85? Think about that. Well, he's waiting on the Lord. He's traipsing around the wilderness waiting for unbelievers to die off, that older generation. He's fighting against the Canaanite nations for another seven long years when they get into the land. And all the while, he is trusting and obeying. Last question, where does one learn to trust and obey? Answer, wherever you happen to be. But, it's good if you learn to trust and obey when you are a child. God loves to use means. And one of His favorite means is bring up a child in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And that's how many children learn to trust and obey. Now, sometimes children grow up and they grow up challenging the authority of their parents because they feel like they know more than their parents know and they don't trust in their parents. I suggest that when you get to be 18, 19, 20, it's going to be very difficult to trust God if you didn't trust your parents, if you're in a Christian family. It's going to be very difficult to obey God if you were in the habit of being disobedient to your parents. Now, I know young people, all young people in the church, can give all of the right evangelical answers to all the questions. But see, there's a time when what's in my heart gets hooked up with what the world has to offer, and then there can be a lot of problems. So let's remember that God's grace is sufficient. He can take a young person who's turned toward the world and turn him around in a minute. But God likes those means of grace. And He likes teaching the Bible in your home. And He likes family worship. And He likes prayer time. And He likes to communicate these stories about courage and determination and initiative and all of those kinds of things so that we have a younger generation of Caleb's and Joshua's coming along who are ready to stand against the enemy. Well, what about you this morning? Can you trust do you obey? Here's the assignment. Get yourself a Christian biography that you've never read before and read about some man or woman or married couple who really are exercising faith to stand against impossible circumstances, to carry the light of the gospel of Christ to the world. And ask yourself, now what characteristics do they possess in contrast to just most of the people in the world out there? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You again for these accounts of men and women in Scripture who lived amazing lives, who were willing to trust Your Word that it was true. And we want to be like that as well. We want to trust You and we want to obey. And I pray for every young person in this room this morning and in our church that they might invest their lives in serving You and believing You so that they would reap great benefits down the road of the future, even as Caleb did. We pray all these things in Christ's name and for His sake. Amen.